Unless otherwise indicated, Ratchet Book Club is intended for a mature audience. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm still Big Red. <laughs> Sorry, no, I'm Rashani. But y'all knew that. I'm Derek. Hi. Um, if you wonder why my name is Rashani, it's because it's it's uh, my middle name. Also, when I was in elementary school, there was like two Derricks in every single class I was in, plus me. So I was always Derek, last initial. I never had my own identity. As a matter of fact, the uh, kids in the class who weren't named Derek uh, took to calling us 3D, um, D1, D2, and D3. Um, and I felt like I should have been D1. Like I still feel like I could have made it to D1, Coach, if you had given me a chance. But nope, I was D2 and did not like that at all. So... When I started podcasting, I was like, fuck my name. First of all, I tried to go by Rick. I told my mom, call me Rick. I was like eight. And she was like, I worked too hard to give you that name for you to just be like, call me Rick. And so that didn't happen. And I was quite put out. Um, so when I got to be older, I started going by first initial, middle name, and then last name. And then I put Esquire on it because that just sounded dope. D. Rashani Esquire. Yeah, that's that's a movement right there. Um, but then somebody told me, and I don't think this is right, that Esquire can only be used by people of stature or lawyers. And I was like, nuh-uh, 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 I can do it. I'm going to do it. And so I did it. And then I stopped because I got bored with it. And I just stuck with Rashani. And now on the podcast, I was Rashani. I was Rashani for like 11 years. Why am I talking like this? Who knows? But after I got tired of being Rashani, even though that's my name, it's my name, dog. Like, that's really my name. After I got tired of being Rashani, I just went back to being Derek. Like, sometimes, you know, it just hits differently when you say it to yourself. My name's Derek. Hi, my name's Derek. My name's Rod. <laughs> um, I'm never going to get past that. This is the freaky deaky. But, um... Thank y'all so much for listening. Uh, 916-633-1537 is the voicemail line. Uh, wretched and ratchet at gmail.com is the email address. Um, y'all can even email me and tell me how fucking funny I am. I know it, but it will still be nice to have it in print. Hang it up on my wall. You know, nice little frame. Um, maybe put some of the... <laughs> my, uh daughter's aunt used to put um like make these 3d frames so like for um pictures of my daughter when she was a baby if she had like blocks around it she put like little blocks in it and all that kind of shit it was dope but weird and probably heavy and it probably would have made a great fucking weapon anyhow ratchet book club on twitter and you can join our Patreon at uh, at patreon.com backslash uh, single simulcast. Or you can just buy me a book at buymeacoffee.com backslash sscast. With no further ado, uh, let's get to Horson. Last we checked, he had lost all him bitches. All them bitches, which was two. All him whores, but he had also met a new girl named Little Bit, who I don't think I don't think she's really cut out for the life. I think she likes to dance. All she wants to do is dance, dance. I'm in a I'm in a mood today. Um, and then his next door neighbor, Boots, 
uh, is also a uh, whore, but she's a um, pregnant. I'm not going to do that. If I'm reading the book, I'll call them whores. But if not, she's a sex worker. She's just pregnant. Chapter 11. The smoke was thick inside, and you could hear the sound of balls being broken open from the rack. Voices were raised in loud bantering, while shooters leaned across the table shooting with deadly eyes. The houseman stood behind a glass counter selling pop and cigarettes, plus Dell candy to the few junkies sitting around nodding. Three street whores stood around the counter sipping pop while they stared towards the back table where their men were gambling. As I walked past them, I capped, You want me to check and see if they done blow the trap money? A small thin girl with coke in her hand shot back, At least my man got trap money to blow. That's more than the honky-tonk bitch you got is going for you, yellow-ass nigga. My ears burned from her scream, and a loafer sitting beside the wall watching the pool players broke out in laughter. A short, fat, brown-skinned hustler I played pool with sometimes remarked, Horse can be awfully cold at times, horsin'. I grinned at him. You right about that, fat daddy, but I brought that on myself. I replied and kept on walking towards the crap table. I tried not to let it show, but I was warm. If I had anything to do with it, I was going to make sure her old man didn't have any money when I pulled up. I knew him by sight, plus that his name was Ray, but that was all I knew about him. The crap game was roaring when I got there. I stood on the sidelines and watched the dice go around. It was mostly factory workers playing, with the sprinkling of hustlers. As I watched, I realized that very few of the so-called hustlers really knew how to get down. The game was ripe. Each shooter could pick up the dice and shoot them like he wanted to. If the fader didn't catch the dice, point seen, money lost. The dice finally came to Ray. He got covered for $20. I groaned when he shot the dice out. He was using the turn down. The same shot I was going to shoot. And he knew what he was doing. My plans for busting him began to dim as I watched the diamond on his little finger glitter. My diamond started watching into some company, so I promised to buy myself a ring in the morning if I won. The house had a limit on passes. After you hit five licks, you had to pass the dice. Ray jumped a four for his fourth shot. He tried to get faded for $120, but wouldn't anybody fade him. Since this was his last shot, I decided to try and set him up. I knew he was crap-wise, and also wouldn't catch a point if I covered such a bet, so I wouldn't have a time to slip in the bust-outs. I stepped over beside him. I got you faded for the 20 baby. I want some of that whore money you getting, I said, talking hip out the side of my neck. He grinned at me. Going for your 20 baby boy. He said, and just as quickly tossed a seven in the door. Man, I exclaimed. I'm glad I didn't fade the whole thing. The stick man, keeping the game moving, yelled, Next shooter! I tossed a hundred dollars to him. Shoot it, I yelled. I almost blowed it fading, so I might as well bet it. I shot the dice out of my hand all the way down the table the way a square would shoot. The dice stopped on seven, too. The stick man yelled, Wait a minute, Red. You ain't even faded. Putting on my good square grin, I smiled. That's all right, house man. I got plenty more of them sevens. Get me on. That kid jive stung, but I waited till his money was in the houseman's hand with mine. I picked the dice up and shot him away from Ray so he couldn't catch him. The dice spun like tops, neither one turning off the five deuce I set him on. Ray almost broke my ribs trying to push me aside so he could catch the spinning dice. I braced myself, though, and he couldn't move me out the way with a Mack truck. Seven, yelled the gamekeeper. Shooter shooting 200. Ray stared at me angrily. His eyes were slits. Suddenly, he grinned. Boy, when you got me, you got a good one, he said quietly, and then yelled. Bet the shooter hits. I couldn't get covered but for $50 the next shot. Then 20 the last two faves were $10. I caught four on my last shot, and between the bets I could beat Ray to, I picked up $40 more on side bets. I jumped four and passed the dice. I waited until the dice had gone halfway around the tail before I made another killing. A large, pot-gutted, light-skinned factory worker wearing bib overalls was shooting. He had started with a $20 bet, hit, and then shot the 40 and now was trying to get on for 80 
I covered the whole bet, then prayed that he wouldn't come out the door with seven or eleven. When he caught six, I bet fifty more around the board that he will miss. Ray was betting the odds, percentage, and hunch, so he had spread about fifty around the board that the shooter would miss. When the shooter turned the dice loose, I caught him and asked him to give me a shake. The dice I tossed back in his hand were bust outs. When he sevened out, I grabbed the dice and switched the proper ones back in the game. You sure know how to get down, kid. And I mean, I mean get down, Ray said, and he slapped me on the back. I didn't know if he had seen me switch, but for the rest of the game, we both bet the same way. I was holding over $200 in my hand when Little Bit came barging up to the table. She grinned. Daddy, give me some money so I can eat. Looking up from the table, I growled, Eat when you break luck, bitch. She whirled around and ran out of the pool room angrily. Two colored factory workers showed up with three white guys from the afternoon shift with fresh money. They must have played with Ray before because they were all trying to bet that Ray would hit. He couldn't get faded, so I tossed up $10 and winked at him. The dice came out with a seven. His thin woman squealed with joy. She was holding on tight to one of the white players. I tossed up another 10 Again, a seven. I kicked his leg and held my right hand below the table and flashed a T. Putting ten more on the table, I said, Ain't nobody going past all night. If your money's long, the dice gonna show wrong. Everybody around the table wanted to make a bet with me. Wait till he comes out and catches a point, I yelled. Then get your money down. I'm covering all bets. Ray tossed a six. I laid him a $50 bet that he would miss. Then laid 200 around the table. I didn't take any chances. When he came out, I caught the dice and tossed my tea in his hand. His next roll was seven. Shoot that money, I yelled while picking up the dice and switching. I picked my side bets up. After two more shots, I left the crap game and moved to the front of the pool room. The wine head started begging for quarters. I gave him $10 to go and get 10 bottles of wine, then sent three more wine heads with the first one to make sure he came back. When Ray came out and got in his car, I was standing outside drinking wine. Between the pool room and restaurant, 20 horse raided back and forth. I walked over to the car and asked Ray to wait a minute. Looking up and down the sidewalk, I couldn't spot Little Bit anywhere. I stepped inside the restaurant and spotted her sitting with two other girls. Did you break luck yet? I asked slowly. How do you expect me to do something, huh? I'm too weak from hunger. She cracked loudly and her girlfriends laughed. I wheeled around and retraced my steps out the door. On the sidewalk, I found three wine heads and paid two of them five dollars a piece to go in the alley and get me two half-full garbage cans. They stared at me as though I was going crazy, but finally realized I was serious. I paid the other man ten dollars, five now and the rest when he returned, to run to the hotel and gather up little bits of clothes and bring them back in a paper bag. Ray was sitting on the passenger side with the window down. Hey, baby. He called, beckoning to me. What's the deal here? Sit down mellow and run it to me. He moved over under the steering wheel and I sat down on the pasture side. His woman stopped and peeked through a window. Get on, bitch. You ain't gonna make no money staring at me, he said brutally. I pulled my roll out and split the money I made when he shot at the six. You didn't have to take the chance and put that tea in my hand, Horson. I was gonna miss anyway, he added. You have a beautiful motion, Horson. I know you'd be knocking, but I'll be damned if I can see you doing it. Our conversation was interrupted by the return of two of the wine heads. Each of them was rolling a half-full garbage can. They left the can standing in front of a darkened doorway and came over to the car. From the doorway, infuriated horror screamed curses at the wine heads for leaving garbage cans from their working spots. I leaned my head out the car window. I'm going to give you ten more dollars to do two more simple things for me. What's that? They asked in the chorus. First, I said, I want you to make sure don't nobody move those cans for a few minutes. Can you handle that? They shook their heads in agreement, so I continued. Secondly, I'm going to put some garbage in those cans, and I want you to make sure it don't get out till you get it back in the alley where all garbage belongs. Man, I don't know what's going down, the taller of the two stated, but if that's all you want, we can sure handle it. The guy I had sent for the clothes walked up with a brown paper bag in his arm. 
he handed me my key through the car window. I opened the car door and got out. After I took the bag from him, I became aware that we were getting a lot of attention. Ray got out of the car and came around and sat on the fender. I sent the man who had brought the clothes in the restaurant to get Little Bit. Walking around to the nearest garbage can, I began dropping the feminine apparel down on top of the garbage. Looking up, I saw Boots staring, apparently shocked. The girls with her watched me with open curiosity. Suddenly, the air was ringing with curses. I whirled in time to catch Little Bit's arms. What the hell you call yourself doing with my clothes, she screamed. God damn it, Horson, you bastard. Turn me loose, you red motherfucker. Realizing that I would hurt her more if I humiliated her, I held back from cracking her head. Picking her up, I pushed her down inside the other garbage can. Each time she tried to climb out, I pushed her down deeper in the can. She eventually stopped trying and just sat there and cried. Some of the pimps and wine heads and other night dwellers laughed loudly. The prostitutes stared angrily at me for my treatment of their sister. Removing my large bankroll, I beckoned to the wine heads I was paying. Take this garbage to the alley where it belongs with the rest of the trash, I commanded, peeling off some bills. The anger in the prostitutes' eyes only added fuel to the fury inside of me. My voice was full of contempt as I tongue lashed them. I'd rather sleep in shit or suck a dog's dick than let one of you funky bitches think for a minute you got enough sense to put game on me. If you feel sorry for that trampish ass bitch, don't. The bitch is where she belongs. With the garbage. Ray slapped me on the back. Pimp hard, he yelled. Let these whores know that a hard pimping young man's on the set. The prostitutes began to slip away. Ray, with his arm around my shoulders, led me towards his car. We got in and he started across town to get some cocaine and reefer. The night was young. I had a pocket full of money, and I believed in my heart I could make as much money as any whore that peed between two hills. We came back to the track around four in the morning. My nose felt like it was frozen from so much coke. We sat in the car, high, smoking reefer with the windows rolled up tight, watching the girls work. Boots walked up and down the street. Even when her belly stuck out a mile, she tried. Every time she stopped the car and waddled out to haggle with the men, some other girl would always come off the sidewalk and stand conspicuously behind her. The men constantly passed over her for the other prostitutes. As the time passed, I began to feel sorry for her. Finally, Ray's woman got in the car. Her trap was fat and she was ready to go in. I said goodnight and got out. He reassured me that he would pick me up later in the day and take me to a pawn shop so I could buy me a ring. Moving back in the shadows, I stood and watched Boots try and work. A carload of young white boys stopped in front of her doorway. When she didn't come out, they just sat there and heckled her. All the other traffic on the street had to go around the jeering teenagers. Since this ruined her chance to stop in a date, she came out of the doorway and started walking down the street. The car moved slowly along beside her. She turned and came back. The driver put the car in reverse and backed up slow so that he could keep up with her pace. When the light from the restaurant outlined her pregnancy, they really began to harass her. Two prostitutes walking past began to take up for her. They berated the kids in the car viciously, their words dripping venom. Where the kids had found Boots vulnerable, they now found themselves defenseless. The prostitutes heaped abuse upon their mothers, fathers, sisters. Nobody was left out. An empty beer bottle came selling out of the car in the direction of the girls. They ducked, and the driver roared off with his tires squealing. I stepped out from my dark concealment. Hi, baby, I said, putting my arm around her waist. You ready to go in? She tried a half-hearted smile. I ain't got my rent money together yet, baby. Don't worry about it, I replied, and I took her arm. Boots shook her head. I couldn't, Horson. If I took the money from you, I'd still have to try and make it back to give it back, she added. Besides, I'm too big to be stuffed in the garbage can. Since I still held her arm, I didn't leave her any alternative. Listen, nut, I said. I'm going to spend $20 with somebody tonight. If you don't want to make that money, that's okay with me. But I'm going to find me a working girl somewhere who ain't so choosy. My proposition was an answer to her problem. 
Shrewd as she was, she saw through my little plot. Boots was well aware that I wasn't planning on spending $20 on a whore. But handling men was her profession, and she was professional enough to know the error of calling a man a liar to his face. For her to yield to my request now was a simple matter. Her ego wouldn't be hurt, and she would still be independent. Mischievously, she put her head down on my shoulder. You really make me feel wanted, she said, and laughed lightly before adding, Sweetie. My muscles tightened involuntarily. The term sweetie was mostly reserved for tricks, black or white, as long as they spent cash money. Genuine laughter erupted from deep in her throat. She had immediately realized my extreme dislike for this term of endearment when it was used in connection with me. Loneliness was a part of life that I wasn't used to. As we walked towards the hotel, I was overjoyed at the prospect of finding temporary release in the warm embrace of Boots' arms. Much, much later, Boots laid in the crook of my arm with her back pressed against me. The sound of her light snoring was pleasing. My thoughts were troubled as I pondered the future. I kept trying to push the idea from my mind, but it was no use. I recognized the truth of my problem. No matter how much inconvenience it would cause me, Boots would have to be mine. Instead of going to sleep, I rolled her over on her back. Then I kissed her eyes, nose, neck, till she moaned and came awake. Blinking her eyes, she stared at me in surprise. What, baby? She asked sleepily. Ain't you gonna get no rest? I kissed her until I could feel her really responding. Tomorrow, honey, I whispered. You gonna move your clothes in here. I'm not giving you time to choose. I already chose. I had her complete attention now. She twisted around affectionately so I was gazing down to her beautiful dark eyes. Horson, don't do nothing for me out of pity, baby. I can make it. I replied crudely. Don't you understand, bitch, that I really want you. Pity ain't in it. I know you're a good whore, big belly or not. So I'm going to hook up with you now. She raised up on her elbows. Not truly convinced my sincerity, she apparently was trying to reach an honest decision. Her acceptance of my proposal was a must, especially since I had committed myself. If she refused me now, my pride would be hurt. Determined that she wouldn't deny me, I enclosed her in my arms and compelled her to surrender. Her nipples grew firm under my caresses, and I made love to her until her voice trembled with erotic weakness. Sometime in the early morning, I relaxed against the sweat-soaked sheets. Her murmur came to me low and husky. I can't describe how you make me feel, but I'm yours, Horson, as long as you want me. It was late in the afternoon when Ray showed up. I had just come back from the bathroom after taking a hot bath. He nodded and smiled warmly at Boots propped up on the bed with both pillows. Hey, girl, he yelled. What you done gone and did? Copped you a Mac? I know you ain't laying up in no pimp's bed yarding, girl, so tell me the real deal. While straightening my tie, I watched her in the mirror. I couldn't help but appreciate her. Her low laugh was deep and sexual. When she smiled, her face took on a rare beauty. She asked lightly, Are you congratulating me on my choice or warning me, Ray? I slipped my overcoat on before interrupting. I'm ready whenever you're ready, Ray. Wow, Ray exclaimed. Man, what's the deal? You done got sharp and even choked up tight on me. I laughed and opened the door, ignoring his remarks about the suit and tie I wore. He was just as immaculate in his attire as I was, except I wore a tie and he didn't. Two hours later, after visiting five different pawn shops, I sat down in the car and relaxed. Glittering on my little finger was an exquisite diamond ring. I stared at it proudly. It had cost $700, but I didn't care. My bankroll was down to $9, yet I didn't have a concern in the world. Whether I was stupid or just didn't realize the value of money, I can't say. After all, I was only 16. Still, I wasn't doing too bad. Jesse had made a better hustler out of me than I realized. It was many grown men who couldn't compare to me when it came to getting down and getting cash money. Here I was in a strange town with a pregnant hoarder support and yet I didn't have any doubts about living. Because if the sun came up, by the time it went down, I figured out a way to get fresh money.
Chapter 12 I stared out of the car window glumly. The feel of the steering wheel didn't excite me as it had the past week, when I received the keys to the Cadillac from Ray. For a few moments, I let my mind dwell on Ray and his predicament. Last week, the police had picked him up for draft evasion. I had gone down to visit him and he had given me the car keys. After being introduced to his mother and promising to give her $500, she had given me the papers to the car. Everything was still in Ray's name, but I had the payment book. Sleep beat a tattoo against the windshield. I stared at the mess falling. It wasn't snowing or raining. This slush was a mixture of both. Visibility was slight, so I strained my eyes trying to pick up Boots, who was standing in front of the restaurant in an attempt to pull a trick. I let out a sigh of relief. Boots came out of the restaurant door with a white john in tow. At least we'll be able to pay the rent in the morning. I watched them make their way to the Trick's car. I wondered idly how she would handle him. He was just about the biggest, fattest man I had ever seen. If we hadn't needed the money so bad, I would have told her to pass him up. She was about seven months gone now. I pictured her and the honky together and grinned. The Trick had a pot gut on him as big as the one she was sporting. I left the curb in pursuit of the Trick's car. I had no fear of being seen because John's back window was completely covered, like mine, with frost. I found a parking spot a few doors down from the hotel and left the motor running, absorbing the heat. I watched a couple dash for the entrance of the building. Boots had turned out to be an asset instead of a hindrance during the past three weeks we had been together. Time passed slowly as I sat there with the radio swinging. I glanced at my watch for the tenth time. They had been gone over 15 minutes. I lit a cigarette to help pass the time. Angrily, I realized that if something didn't jump off soon, I'd have to pawn my jewelry to raise the $500 for the car. After smoking the cigarette down to a butt, I put it out in the ashtray. Cutting the motor off, I jumped out of the car. Tomorrow was my birthday and I'd be damned if I spent it cooped up in the car. I pulled my coat collar up and glanced at my watch. Damn, tomorrow? Today was the beginning of my birthday, and I was poor as hell. The hotel lobby was empty as I crossed it and started up the steps. The night clerk had a small room behind the desk, and he had to ring the bell if he wanted a room after midnight. Stopping in the hallway leading to my room, I glanced at my watch. They had been up there for over 30 minutes now. Hesitantly, I stood in front of the door holding the key. I was undecided on whether I should knock or just barge in when the sound of a muffled scream came from behind the closed door. I inserted the key and lunged into the room. The sight in front of me enraged me. Boots was completely naked, while the trick was wearing only his shorts. He was so obsessed with beating her that he hadn't heard me into the room. He was using an iron cord to whip her. Blood was running from her nose and mouth from the punch of the trick would give her each time she tried to grab hold of the cord. Boots was so engrossed in trying to avoid the cord and punches that she didn't hear me either. She tried to cover her head with the pillow while pulling the sheet up around her body to protect as much of it as possible. Picking up a chair sitting beside the dresser, I slipped up beside the trick and tried to cave his skull in. The chair splintered on the back of his head. He rolled around and reached for me. His face was covered with blood from the long nails Boots had raked him with. With the remains of the splintered chair, I struck him in the face. The chair didn't stop him. He grunted and wrapped his arms around me. He was as hairy as a gorilla. His chest, legs, arms, and back were covered with a thick, filthy mass of hair. For the first time since I entered the room, fear entered my mind. His foul breath was smothering me from our nearness. In desperation, I swung my knee up between his legs as hard as I could. A cry of pain exploded from his lips and I kneed him again. His big frame began to fold up. Catching him by his hair, I pulled his head down and lifted my knee with all the force I could put into it. I caught him full in the face, crushing his nose and causing teeth to scatter around the room. He had false teeth because when he fell to the floor, he spit out the rest of them. He stared up at me with fear in his eyes. When I saw that fear, I knew I had him. Grabbing up the ironing cord, I began to beat him viciously. His screams had the effect of waking up everybody in the hotel. 
the trick crawled towards a corner and I beat his hulking body unmercifully. Every time he tried to get off his knees and come out the corner, I kick him in the face. Suddenly, he screamed, That's it! That's it! Don't stop! He gasped in shuddering ecstasy. I stared at him in astonishment. He held his penis tight and moaned sickeningly. The doorway was filling up with couples trying to peer in. The clerk stood in the doorway and stared in horror. His eyes kept going from the sickening side of the perverted trick in the corner to boots, naked and bloody, stretched out on the bed. Not realizing that I still held the ironing cord, I started towards the door to close it. Everybody in the doorway backed up in a hurry. Listen here, boy, the clerk said hotly. If you start beating him again, I'm calling the police. I don't give a damn if that freakish honky in there wants you to beat him or not. I ain't having that kind of shit in this hotel. I slammed the door in its face. When I turned around, the trick was putting his clothes back on. My voice was cold and deadly. Leave your money on the dresser. All of it, honky. Just consider yourself lucky that's all it's going to cost you. I should kill you, Peckerwood. He took all the money out of his wallet and placed it on the dresser. Then, clinging to the wall till he reached the door, he snatched it open and fled down the hallway. My heart began to beat normally again after he left. I realized that he could have beaten me to death if he hadn't been such an arch coward. Assuming an air of compassion, I moved over to the bed and began to examine Boots. I found a pan, filled it with warm water, and washed her wounds gently. All the while, I ignored the money on the dresser, but my mind was in an uproar after wondering how much was there. After I finished washing Boots and got her to go to sleep, I rushed over to the dresser. There was only $18 there. All the bills were $1 ones. I had been hoping for a couple of hundreds at least, but the singles had faked me out. It didn't take a cute perception for me to realize that I would have to play some more stores in the near future. Like early in the morning. I needed cash money, quick. Under the baseball, I had hidden the last of a $20 spoon of cocaine. I sat up with the coke and some weed until daylight invaded the room. The sound of the morning traffic had dwindled slightly when I got up and slipped on my booster overcoat. It was a coat with shot pockets sewed into the inside lining. Two exceptionally large pockets, I might add. After smoking the last joint, I was ready for work. I glanced at the clock on the dresser, just a little after seven. Boots moaned in her sleep as I gave her a quick check on my way out. On the street, I pulled my collar up. The hail had stopped, but a freezing wind was blowing. I started the car and climbed back out to clean the windows. The car was warm by the time I got back inside. Traffic moved along at a brisk pace as I drove downtown. I stopped off and had breakfast, killing a little more time. Most of the main stores were still unopened. I parked on the side street and started walking. The first store I entered turned out to be a blank. There was nothing above the counters that I could swing with, and not enough money in the till for me to note. Hitting the street again, I fell in step behind two well-dressed ladies. They walked fast in an attempt to escape the chilling wind. When they turned down a side street, I stopped and watched them run across the street and enter a modern-looking building. That made up my mind for me. I crossed the street and examined the name on the building. Reuben Donnelly Publishing Company. I started to examine it more closely as the two secretaries rushed past. I followed them into the building. The corridor was empty. The lobby had been scantily furnished. Just a few chairs. Next to two payphones, I found a directory. I scanned it quickly. The building had six floors. The printing department was located on the second floor. I quickly decided to bypass that floor. I passed the elevators and found a door marked stairway. I took the stairs two at a time until I reached the top floor. I crept down the deserted hallway and discovered I had reached the floor the cafeteria was on. Peeping through a window, I saw the sister I noticed enter the building. She seemed to be fixing up the counter. Except for the two women in uniform, the place seemed empty. Retracing my steps, I took the stairs down to the fifth floor. I hesitated before opening the door until the sound of high heels faded away. Straightening my coat, I removed a newspaper from my coat pocket. It was already turned to the want ads. 
Gripping the paper firmly, the way I imagined a good job hunter would do, I stepped into the hallway. I smiled at the fleeting thought that it would really be amusing if I got hired. I walked down the hallway briskly but silently. The first office I stopped at, I could see someone silhouetted through the shaded glass so I crossed the corridor to another office. With my head beside the door, I listened patiently. Not hearing any sounds, I took the plunge. I stepped inside the office. The office was deserted, but the door leading to an adjoining room was open. I could hear a woman's voice coming from the other office. As I listened, I heard a man speak, but I couldn't make out the words. Quickly, I examined the room I was in. There were two desks in the office, both on the other side of the room from me. To reach either desk, I'd be in view of whoever was in the other room. The only thing in my favor was a thick carpet on the floor. I held my breath and began creeping. The woman had her back to the open door, while the man was sitting at his desk with his head down, examining a cluster of papers. I passed the open door without being observed and reached the first desk. I bypassed it for the second desk, where a chair had been pushed back, as though somebody had just risen. As quietly as possible, I opened the second drawer. The bottom one on the right had only paperwork. It was empty, too. I moved over to the other side of the desk and pulled out a drawer. The first thing that met my eye was a large black pocketbook. I removed it and closed the drawer. The damn thing was too large to fit the pockets inside my coat, so I stuck it under my armpit. My heart skipped a beat as I heard the woman start for the door. I froze as the door opened wider. Should I break and run? Maybe I could brazen the bust out. I stepped from behind the desk. The sound of the man's voice halted the woman in the doorway. When she turned to answer, I made my move. Moving quickly but silently, I recrossed a short distance and reached the door, praying all the while that the woman framing the doorway concealed me from the man's view. I opened the door and stepped out into the hallway, leaving the door ajar. Without looking back, I rushed towards the stairway. Before I reached the stairs, the elevator stopped and a woman got out. I gave her my dazzling smile and stepped into the elevator. I pushed the button for the first floor, then tried to arrange the awkward pocketbook under my arm so it wouldn't be conspicuous. At the second floor, the elevator opened, causing my heart to flutter. An elderly woman peeped into the empty elevator. Up? She asked stupidly. Down, I replied as I pushed the button for the door to close. When I got downstairs and out on the street, I looked back over my shoulder at the building. This was one hell of a way to be spending my 17th birthday, I thought bitterly. I reached my car and rode away from the downtown district. After I found a small deserted side street, I parked and started searching through the pocketbook. The purse had $10 in cash in it. I cursed for about 10 minutes, then investigated the rest of the contents. The bank book I inspected with care. The $1,450 she had deposited in the bank really interested me. I examined all of her identification. Only her driver's license had the revealing W on it. I tossed the license out the window and started the car up. There was no way in the world for Boots to pass for white, but the rest of the ID could be used by her. The woman was 28 years old. Boots could pass for 28 with her belly sticking out in front of her for a mile. Providing we found a white bank teller, they always said we looked alike to them. Taking my time on the slippery streets, I reached the hotel with time to spare. The bank didn't open till 9. Whereas I was completely unfazed about stealing the purse, I did have a few qualms over Boots withdrawing the money. Despite my concern, I was going to make her try and withdraw all that cash. After all, I reasoned, if she fucked up and got caught, being pregnant would be in her favor when she went before the judge. Boots was lying down in the bed moaning when I entered the room. I put my hand on her head. It was hot. I'm bleeding, Horson, she whispered. I stared down at her for a moment. Listen, baby, ain't there something you can do, like pack yourself or something? Just slow the bleeding down. I got something I want you to do now. I might not be able to stop the bleeding, Horson. I done already soaked through two pads in the sheet. I think I'm hemorrhaging. My mind was running super fast. I needed her now. I'll tell you what, baby. Take and pack yourself with cotton, and then get dressed and I'll take you to a doctor. 
There was no compassion in my heart, nor was I conscious of any concern about her having a miscarriage. In fact, I hoped that she would lose the baby. If my mother could see me now, she couldn't help but be proud. At 17, I was developing into a cold, vicious pimp. This is the way I reasoned with myself, but in my heart, I knew that if Jessica could see what I was doing, she would have thrown up in my face. I needed that money, though, and time was something I didn't have. If I didn't get it this morning, it would be too late later on in the day. Boots was too slow getting dressed for me, so I helped her. After getting a maternity dress on her, I grabbed a spring coat and tossed it across her shoulders. She was in too much pain to notice that I left her heavy coat on the rack by mistake. The mistake had been made on purpose. I wanted the bank teller to be sure and see that she was pregnant. Finally, we got ready to go. I had to just about carry her down the stairs. I began to have doubts about her holding up long enough for us to make it to a bank. At no time did I even think about taking her to a hospital or a doctor. I wanted the money before the bank could be notified. There was another stop I had to make before going to the bank. I parked in the no-standing zone and rushed into a drugstore. I bought a pair of round-rimmed glasses and some pain pills. The eyeglass she put on, the pills she couldn't swallow without water, and I didn't have the time to stop and get any. Driving towards the outskirts of town, I searched frantically for a branch office bank. I finally found one near the city limits. By this time, Boots seemed nearly delirious. Her legs were stretched out towards me, while her head was against the door. When I shook her, she didn't wake up completely. I got out of the car and picked up a handful of slush. Opening the car door on her side, I held her hand and washed her face with dirty snow. She sputtered and spit, but the ice shocked her awake. Listen, baby, I whispered. You're going to have to be kind of sharp now. I done told you a dozen times how to do this and how simple it is. I had to help her get out of the car. All you got to do is fill out a withdrawal slip, give it to the teller, and get big bills. You going with me, Daddy? She asked, clutching my shoulder for support. You know I am, baby. You don't think I send you by yourself, did you? I said. I hadn't planned on going in with her, but a blind man could see she would never make it herself. I steered her through the bank entrance. While she filled out the slip, I arranged her coat so her protruding stomach can help it be seen. It's a belief of mine, I don't know if it's true or not, that people will never suspect pregnant women of a hoax. The mother image is so strong that most people wouldn't imagine a woman in this condition swindling anyone, let alone them. The only doubt I had after entering the bank was when the teller picked up the phone. The only reason I didn't run was that my hands were full trying to keep boots on her feet. She had put most of her weight on me, and I was really holding her up. When I turned back towards the bank teller, she was already talking on the phone. If I ran, I would have to drag Boots, because she was holding on to me for dear life. The teller hung up and smiled. She started counting out the money. To be fair to the lady whose money I was taking, I left $50 in the bank. Back in the car, I just about got Boots settled before she passed out. I pulled out in the traffic and drove back towards town as fast as I dared. I still hadn't learned to drive too well, and not having a license, the last thing I wanted was to be stopped. I spotted a doctor's office on the other side of the street. Making a U-turn, I pulled up in front of the building. Some kind of way I got her half away so she could stand on her feet if I held her, I managed to get her into the doctor's office. The receptionist took one look at me holding boots up and rushed into another room. The white patient sitting around the room stared at us curiously. It wasn't long before she was back, followed by a bald-headed fat man. He was blown as if he had just run a mile. He tossed his hands in the air. No, no, no. You must take her to her own gynecologist. Better yet, take her to an obstetrician, but this is the wrong place, young man. I was dumbfounded. I hadn't understood most of what he said, but I did comprehend wrong place. You're a doctor, ain't you? I asked belligerently. The doctor stared at me as though I was losing my mind. I'm a dermatologist, he yelled. Didn't you read the sign outside? Boots slipped out of my arms and fell on the floor at my feet. The doctor looked as if he was going to have the baby. The nurse rushed to a telephone while the doctor and I raved.
I pulled my large roll of money out. Behind all I heard and knew of white people, I knew this would get results. Look, Doc, I started to say. I'll pay. The doctor raised his hands towards heaven, spoke for a few moments in another language, and then said, I don't want your money. I'm a dermatologist. Don't you understand? There's nothing... I interrupted him harshly. Why, you color-struck bastard, you. You'd allow this young girl to suffer? At the sound of my words, the doctor turned bright red. The nurse spoke up. Don't worry. I've called an ambulance. It'll be here shortly. The doctor and I exchanged a few more choice words before the ambulance crew arrived. When they did arrive, we were standing in our boots glaring at each other, while the nurse knelt beside her, giving her a shot. As I followed the stretcher from the office, I turned the doorway. You're about as useful as a doctor, I said loudly, as a penis is on a sissy. As I started my car up to follow the ambulance, I glanced at the sign. Dermatologist. I couldn't pronounce the damn word, let alone spell it, and I sure didn't have the slightest idea what it meant. Later, at the hospital, an intern thinking I was a grief-stricken husband stopped and explained. Your wife has had a miscarriage. And the membrane was punctured, causing the fetus to die. And when that happened, the uterus started to expel it. You mean she gonna lose the baby? I asked ingenuously. The young intern stared at me for a moment to see if I was serious. Then realizing I was just young and dumb, he said, she has lost the baby. Now we're trying to stop the hemorrhaging so we don't lose the mother too. That rang a bell. The last thing I wanted to do was lose a good whore. After waiting all this time for her to get streamlined, I didn't want to lose her now that she was ready for the track. When he saw the shock in my face, the intern walked away. I felt the bankroll in my pocket. It was $400 short because of the hospital bill. I shouldn't have paid the damn bill so fast. If she died and I hadn't paid the bill, all I'd have to do was deny being her husband and the hell with the bill. The thought of her dying rang in my mind, followed by the frightening knowledge of what a funeral would cost. I sat down suddenly and began to pray. Please, Lord, don't let that young girl die. For the next two hours, I sat there with my head in my hands. Whenever a nurse came by, she would try and console me. They must have imagined me as a grieving husband, for they were all very kind. They didn't realize I was just about as concerned about my money as I was about boots. I don't want this misunderstood, so I'll try and explain it better. If boots lived, the hell with the 400. But if she died, then it was a two-way blow. A good whore is always worth more than $400 to a good pimp. One of the nurses stopped and persuaded me to go home and get some rest. It didn't take much urging. I had been trying to figure out a good excuse for departing. That way, if something happened, I'd make damn sure they couldn't find me to stick with the burial expense. The next few days were days of worry. I called the hospital constantly. Most of the nurses knew my voice by now, and they kept me up on the latest. She was out of the worst of it, so I could start relaxing. This was really beautiful news. I knew in the near future I'd be pimping again and showing up doing it big. Chapter 13 My thoughts were sharply interrupted by the ringing of the telephone. I picked up the receiver and listened to Boots' excited chatter. Okay, Boots, just grab a cab. I'll have everything ready when you get here. Things had begun to get damn hot in this small town for us. I had moved from the hotel one jump ahead of the vice squad. Everybody on the track knew the police were looking for the light-skinned Negro with the pregnant woman. Now the search had moved to the hospitals. Some black-ass nigga had done some tall talking to the police because Boots had just been interviewed by two detectives. Removing my bankroll from under the pillow, I sat up and counted the money. There was still $300 left in my roll. After paying Ray's mother $500, the cost of living in the motel the past few days was beginning to eat up my stash. A car pulled up outside. I pulled back the curtain and looked out. It wasn't Boots, but she wouldn't be long. As soon as she could steal some clothes, she would slip out of the hospital. It didn't take long for me to come to a solution to our problems. Put some highway between us and the police. Our bags were already packed, so I carried them out to the car and put them in the trunk. After that, I removed the silk scarf from around my head and combed my hair, 
and then put our toilet articles in the overnight bag and laid them on the arm of a chair. I examined the room carefully, making sure I hadn't overlooked anything. The sound of a car stopping in front of my unit gave me a stop. I peeped out the window cautiously. Boots was getting out of a cab. I rushed to the door and opened it, and handed her the cab fare. We stood in the doorway and watched the cab until it turned out of the driveway. Let's go, baby. She asked, ain't you going to give me enough time to change clothes? I removed the overnight bag from the chair. You could change some gas station on the highway, baby. Right now, we gonna get the hell out of here before we get locked up tight. The mention of jail put wings on her heels. I didn't begin to relax until we got out of the city limits. The farther I got away from the city, the better I felt. After I got out in the country, I stopped at a gas station and filled the tank up, while Boots went to the restroom and changed clothes. When she came back to the car, I helped her put her suitcase in the back seat. I pulled the car out onto the highway again. I was undecided on where to go. Detroit, Chicago, or New York. With Boots beside me pouring the drinks and lighting the reefer, I was at peace with the world. Where are we going, Daddy? She asked, crossing her legs and leaning towards me. She rubbed the back of my neck, titillating me slightly. Driving with one hand on the wheel... I put my other one between her legs and rubbed her smooth thighs affectionately. Her long, shapely black legs seemed to vibrate with heat. She moaned softly and nibbled at my ear. I can't do nothing for at least four weeks, Horson. You could do something, I replied with a grin. I ain't heard nothing about your head being dead. We both laughed raucously. Boots lit up another stick of weed and choked on the smoke. She coughed for about five minutes while I laughed all the while. When we reached Detroit, we were still in a jocular mood. Driving down Hastings Street was a thrill for me. The appalling deterioration of the tenements, gloomy and frightening to some people, filled me with joy. This was home to me. I didn't know any other way of life. The women huddled in the doorways, trying to find some measure of warmth and shelter while plying their trade. Didn't arouse commiseration in my heart. Only regret that they weren't in my stable. Boots' impression was altogether different from mine. I sure feel sorry for them bitches. I bet they damn near done froze in them doorways. Then she added, If it was me, I'd walk up and down instead of standing still. That way, at least you might stay a little bit warm. Some of the more notable pimps could be seen sitting in their car with the motors running. Sometimes a girl would run out of a doorway and get in the car. After sitting in the car for a few moments to get warm... She would run back to her doorway and continue working. I parked in front of Big Mama's. Most of the women standing in her doorway knew me. They began to yell before I even got out of the car. Look at Horson, honey. Driving a Cadillac and diamond down, Marge yelled, a healthy coffee-colored woman. Boots got out of the car and waited for me at the curb. She put her arm around me and tossed her head up. Her attitude revealed beyond a doubt that I was her man and she was plenty proud of it. We walked up the stairs, arrogant and self-sufficient, without a care in the world. Big Mama, her face all aglow, smothered me in her huge arms. Horson, boy, why didn't you write or something? Here I've been worried to death over you and you didn't even bother to write. I finally extricated myself from her embrace. I hadn't realized how much I missed this big woman who cared so much about me. There was a lump in my throat, and I hoped my eyes wouldn't betray me by glittering with tears. Come here, baby, I said to Boots, and meet my grandma. Boots was a big woman herself, but when Big Mama embraced her, she was completely lost in those enormous arms and bosom. Big Mama removed the bottle of wine from her refrigerator, and we sat around in her kitchen drinking and reminiscing. Horson, Big Mama said, I still got your flat, boy. If you want to move back in, it's okay with me. I've been paying the rent and sleeping there sometimes. It does my poor heart good to get away from all these silly girls at times. I'm sick of hearing them talk about their damn pimps. My acceptance of the flat seemed to bring joy to the old woman's soul. I guess she just felt as if I was her wayward child. On my part, I not only felt but knew that, except for Boots, she was the only person in the world who really cared about what happened to me. 
Quite a bit of time had elapsed since we entered the apartment. I stood up. Well, Big Mama, I said, I guess we had better be going. We've been traveling all morning and need some rest. Boots stood up and clutched my arm for support. The drinks and weed had finally caught up with her. That girl sure can't drink much, can she? Big Mama asked. She's been drinking all morning, I replied. Plus, she just got out of the hospital today. If that's the truth, Horson, Big Mama said plainly, don't you go putting that girl to work too soon. You wait till she's ready, you hear? She followed us to the door. I mean that, Horson. If you need any money, boy, let me know. But you better make damn sure I don't hear about that girl out there working sick. Her friendly warning followed us down the stairs. It was obvious that I wouldn't work boots until she was in good shape. Amusing as Big Mama's threat was, it would benefit me to pay heed to it. If I put Boots out on the street working and Big Mama got the wire, she wouldn't hesitate to lock Boots up in her flat, and there was nothing I'd be able to do about it. It was a sure bet that I wouldn't try kicking her door down. Anytime a man's been raised by a woman, his mother or not, there are certain liberties she can take with her that no other person in the world would dare do. By the time I got Boots in the car and was starting the motor up, somebody knocked on the window. I glanced over my shoulder and saw Ake grinning at me. Reaching over Boots' sprawled out form, I opened the car door and let him in. He waved back at the men he had been with as I pulled away from the curb. Ape had filled out quite a bit since I seen him last. He had been big before, but now he was huge. When he smiled, he still resembled a titanic gorilla. He didn't have but two teeth in the front of his mouth, and his lips were large and blubberish. When Boots got sober enough to look at him, she tried to climb on top of my lap. Watch out, woman, I yelled. What you gonna do, sit on the steering wheel? How far we gotta go to find some good reefer, ape? He hesitated for a moment. Billy's got some good light green horsing. While Eddie's smoke is good, it's got a lot of sticks and stuff in it. He added, Eddie's dealing out of the pool room. I don't care nothing about the sticks, ape, if the smoke is boss. The smoke is mellow, baby, he answered. The sweet thing about it is that it don't take no time to cop. When Eddie ain't at the pool room, he leaves his bag with the rack man. The pool room was on John R., so I turned down a side street. Give him $15, Boots, out of my inside pocket. Cop me a half a can of weed, Abe, and pick up a couple of bottles of wine. We'll be around at the flat where I used to stay. Is that cool with you? He took the $15 out of her hand. That's swinging, brother. What should I do if some of the mellow fellows want to come around your pad with me? Cut them loose? I laughed. The expression on his face revealed all he didn't say. He knew that I was wondering if I would cut off all my old partners now that I had a caddy and a whore. Bring whoever you want, man. This is Horson, not John Flipping Gates. He stuck his hand back in the car. I leaned over and smacked his hand hard with mine. He yelled, Mellow, mellow, mellow. I can dig it. I can really dig where you're coming from, baby boy. He turned and catted towards the pool room. Boots looked at me amused. Baby, I can really tell you back home. 916-633-1537. Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter. Uh, leave a review on Podchaser. Uh, all you gotta do is type in Ratchet Book Club. You can leave a review on separate episodes or the show as a whole. Um, you can also leave a review on Apple and Stitcher. You can become a Patreon member at patreon.com backslash single simulcast. And you can help us buy books by donating at uh, buymeacoffee.com backslash sscast. Thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. I'll holler at y'all later. Y'all be good. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes.
you can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. No, no,